Good evening, and welcome back to another episode of Yale Cancer Center Answers. I'm Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst. Dr. Herbst is the Ensign Professor of Medicine in Medical Oncology and Professor of Pharmacology and Chief of Medical Oncology for Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. He's with me here tonight to talk about advances in immunotherapy for lung cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. A pleasure to be here, Anise. So, Roy, let's start by setting the stage of what exactly is lung cancer and how bad a disease is it? I mean, are there therapies that are really required for this disease, or is it something that's already well treated? Um, uh, yes and no. Lung cancer is uh, probably uh, one of the most common cancers diagnosed. Uh, it's second only to breast cancer for women and prostate cancer in men. And um, a large number of people uh, succumb to lung cancer each year. It's probably uh, the top one on the list. So it tells you how serious it is. Uh, the problem is it's quite common. Um, uh, it's often caused by smoking, but about 10-15% of patients have not smoked. Um, and uh, there are other factors that can result in, in lung cancer, you know, other uh, toxins and other things in the environment. But the real problem is lung cancer often is diagnosed uh, already in, a, in an advanced stage. So it's no longer uh, treatable with um, surgery or radiation therapy. Uh, in fact, even when it is treated that way, it, it has a, a high proclivity to spread. We call that metastasize. So lung cancer is a very serious disease, and uh, fortunately we have a very strong group here at Smile that studies it. And I can tell you over the course of my career, now more than 20 years, the advances that we've seen uh, to treat this disease have been enormous. So let's, let's take one step back before we dive into treatments and all of the advances that have been made in lung cancer. When you talk about lung cancer being diagnosed at a late stage, what we've seen in a number of other cancers is that there's really been a burgeoning of screening, which helps us to find malignancies at earlier and earlier stages where they're most treatable. Is there any advances going on in lung cancer in that regard? Yes, you know, screening is important, and quite frankly, it's been underutilized. We have a screening program here at the Smile Cancer Hospital. Um, it's, um, right now, the, the data only supports screening people who are current smokers or former smokers, uh, having uh, quit uh, fewer than 15 years ago, um, in the ages of 55 to 75 or, or thereabouts. So it's a very limited group that gets screened. Even within that group, we're seeing far fewer people uh, coming for screening than could possibly come. In that group, there are data, large randomized trials that show that those patients, if they get a low-dose uh, CT scan, CAT scan, um, early lesions can be found that then can be um, uh, cut out or, 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 or treated in some way um, you know, uh, before they, they spread. Um, we're doing some of that here. Uh, we actually have a large program as part of our lung spore. That's a grant that we have in lung cancer. When the patients come for screening, we also use that as a teachable moment to, to bring the patients in for smoking cessation. And we have some very novel uh, smoking cessation uh, programs here that are using some very um, uh, new messaging techniques along with medication and other counseling. So that's, that's all very important. I'd love to see screening enhanced. Of course, in order to do that, we need to identify those populations most at risk. Because as opposed to breast cancer screening, for example, or prostate screening, which many of the people listening might have already had, those are tests where if you find something that's wrong, uh, the biopsies and the next steps are not that difficult. They still require some, some, some biopsies. But for lung cancer, imagine if you find something in the lung 
You don't know whether it's really a cancer or it's just some abnormality of age or, or just uh, and, and time. Uh, going in and taking a biopsy from the lung is much more difficult. So that's one other reason why I think lung cancer hasn't uh, you know, uh, taken off as a, as a disease where screening is, is as common as it could be. But we're really trying to increase that. I actually just came from a meeting uh, where we have actually a foundation grant uh, from the Bristol-Myers Foundation, which is actually helping us to bring navigators into the community, into all aspects of the community, all, all the different areas, uh, you know, some of the underserved populations as well, to really try to help people to get to our, our hospital so that they can be screened. Because if we can prevent lung cancer, despite everything we're about to talk about, that's the best way uh, to deal with it. And, and one of the problems, as you said, with screening uh, as well, is that there are people who have never smoked who also will get lung cancer and aren't eligible for screening. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I see that all the time, especially since we tend to be a referral center for many of these uh, patients. Up to 15% of patients, you know, will have not smoked or maybe they have a very light smoking history, you know, a few cigarettes, you know, in, in college perhaps, you know, but, but really not a significant history at all. And we now know that there's a, a lung, lung cancers that are driven by certain uh, oncogenes, certain, certain proteins that tend to uh, occur more in people who have not smoked. That's known as epidermal growth factor receptor. And we, we, see, we see a good deal of that as well. The therapies for that have truly in, improved as well. But it's a small fraction of the patients. And even there, well, we, we have to worry about the, the cancer becoming resistant even when we start some of these novel therapies. So, Roy, that's a nice segue into talking about how we treat lung cancer because it seems to me that lung cancer, like many cancers that we talk about on this show, is really a heterogeneous group of diseases. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I like to tell the students it's not lung cancer, it's lung cancers because of the heterogeneity. Every, every patient's tumor is different because it's starting out of a unique genetic material. You know, every person's different. And then there are so many different causes, whether it be smoking or, or radon gas or asbestos or, or some, some other, um, you know, random event that's occurred, you know, uh, you know as, as cells divide. There's so many different variations. Um, and if you think of uh, there being 25,000 genes that make proteins in a, in a tumor, when we do sequencing studies to look at these, we see so many different variations. It's hard to say one size fits all and to have one therapy for all. That's why for some of these what we call targeted therapies, the results have been quite promising, but they are still limited because uh, only a small percentage of patients will have uh, you know, the abnormality that corresponds with a drug that we can give. The majority of patients, I'd say still more than 80%, uh, do not have a specific abnormality, making it even more difficult to figure out how to treat them. So we have to be personalized, and that's, that's the mantra of, 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 of the era. Personalized therapy for cancer, that of course means personalized care and, and careful attention to patients' complaints and symptoms, that goes without saying. But now we have to be personalized and look at the tumor, understand what's driving it, what, 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 what are the, what's causing that? What's the gas for that tumor? What, what are the, the key parts of that engine that if we knocked them out, it would stop, um, uh, stop working? And that's what we're trying to do here at the Smile Hospital. So, Roy, tell me a little bit more about how you do that. I mean, how do you look inside of a tumor and figure out what the gas pedal is and what the brake pedal is and, and how those mutations are driving that cancer? How does that happen? If a patient presents, uh, they've been coughing up blood or they're short of breath or all of the symptoms that we associate with lung cancer, how do you get to understanding what particular kind of lung cancer that individual patient has? 
Right. Well, we're, we're pretty tuned into this now. So if someone does have the symptoms you mentioned, they come in, we find a mass, they get a biopsy. Oftentimes, before I'll see the patient, many of the tests that we need to personalize the therapy are already done. So now in, in uh, 2018, uh, what we'll typically do is the first thing we'll do is determine what type of cancer is it. Is it small cell or non-small cell lung cancer? Those are old terms, but still important because small cell is a very different disease. Small cells are usually always associated with a smoking history. Uh, within the non-small cell patients, what we'll then do is uh, we'll profile that tumor, meaning here at the Yale Cancer Center, Smile Cancer Hospital, uh, we'll send off a battery of genes, usually 50 to get started, to look for different uh, genetic drivers, different abnormalities that will help us to treat in a specific way. One of those is the uh, gene epidermal growth factor receptor, uh, where there are several abnormalities that we can then treat with a pill. Uh, there's also something called ALK, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, uh, and several others. And we'll test for those so that by the time we see that patient, we'll know whether he or she has that abnormality. Uh, we also now are in an era where for many of the others, the other 80% who don't have one of those uh, uh, drivers, we now know immunotherapy can be very, very helpful. Using the body's own immune system uh, to attack the cancer, enhancing it with different drugs and therapies that we have, sometimes even in clinical trials. And uh, in order to do that, we need to know about something called PDL1, actually discovered by Dr. Li Ping Chen, one of the professors here at Yale, uh, a while back. But now we can measure PDL1 uh, on tumors, and we actually have that result before we see the patient in clinic. And then using all that information along with the severity of the tumor, how many locations uh, it's, it's moved to uh, within the patient, we can design a multimodality treatment plan. So what typically happens on Monday mornings at 7.30 a.m., uh, we, we get together uh, at a tumor board. Uh, that's over at the uh, Smile Cancer Hospital, uh, uh, Yale Medical School. Um, we have surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists such as myself, um, many of our nurse practitioners, nurses, students, fellows, and most importantly, sitting there for the first 10 minutes is our pathologist. And what he or she will do is they'll look at the tumor and tell us the molecular characteristics. You know, is it squamous or, or non-squamous lung cancer, small cell? But then they'll review the results of the profiling. So we'll know if we have one of these gene mutations usually uh, before we see the patient. If not, if it's someone who's being referred and comes in very quickly, we'll ask for the tissue so that we can get that done. And we'll know, yes, this tumor is being driven by the epidermal growth factor receptor. That means they should get an oral drug. And now the, 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 the drugs that we have for this are, are just um, so advanced. We're in the third generation of drugs. Or if we find they don't have one of these molecular drivers, we'll say, okay, are they a candidate for immunotherapy? If the level of this protein I mentioned, PDL1, is high, some patients might get immunotherapy right off the bat and not even have chemotherapy. That's how strong some of the data are. Uh, some of it you know, derived from work we've done here over the last 10 years. Or if the, 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 those values are low, we might say, well, maybe the patient needs a combination of chemotherapy with immunotherapy. Or what we really try to do, and this is, this is why it's uh, so wonderful working in a place like Yale, is we have protocols. We're the, the type of place that can raise the bar, that can, can actually, where many of these new therapies are developed, and then they're exported out. So if, if a patient came in, I would look at all these uh, characteristics. I'd work with my team because I really benefit from having such a strong team to, to advise. And then we might decide, well, maybe there's a clinical trial where there are two immunotherapies being used together. 
because those are shown to have a higher percentage of, of benefit than one alone. It's still not proven, so we're doing it in a clinical study. We're getting drugs from different industry partners. Sometimes we have drugs that we've developed here at Yale and we bring forward. That's especially satisfying that something's been developed in the lab across the street. You, you do all the toxicity work. It, it makes it to the clinic, usually with the help of a, a company that's helping to develop. But then we're studying those here at Yale, and we have actually one like this we're about to start. So it really is a fantastic opportunity to really try to push the limits of therapy because you know this is such a deadly disease, but, but we're seeing such, such um, amazing results. Um, so I, I trained as a fellow. I trained in Boston, um, gosh, more than 20 years ago. And I remember you know, when I went into lung cancer, quite frankly, very few people wanted to go into the field. Um, that was the job that was available. I took the job and I, I, I focused on it. I learned as much about the biology and treatment as I could. And then, you know, over the years, you know, was very involved in the development of some of the targeted agents. And that was during my time at MD Anderson. And, and now, since I've been at Yale, we've really focused on the immune therapy of lung cancer. And now, the reason I bring that up is a patient that we would have seen 20, 25 years ago with advanced metastatic disease. Quite frankly, that discussion with the patient would have been a very, very hard one because, you know, we didn't have much to offer, and we'd offer chemotherapy, which helped a little bit. Um, but, but now we have the immune therapy, and the immune therapy is just fantastic. But you know what, Anise? It's still only working really well in 2 out of 10 and 20%. So what we're really committed to here at the hospital is figuring out how to help the other 80%, and that's with protocols, with, with molecular studies, bringing the whole team to bear on this disease. So we're going to pick up on that and all of the clinical trials going on here at Yale for lung cancer right after we take a short break for a medical, medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about advances in lung cancer treatment and immunotherapy with my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Roy Herbst. We're talking about novel advances in lung cancer treatment, um, particularly targeted therapy and immunotherapy and some of the clinical trials that are going on in this field. So, Roy, I wanted to pick up on just a couple of things from our previous discussion before the break. One was you had mentioned that the therapy for people who have epidermal growth factor receptor positive lung cancer is an oral therapy. Does that mean that they don't have lung, they don't ha- need chemotherapy and their hair won't fall out and they won't get nauseated? I mean, that's really incredible. Right. It, it really is. And these first studies um, were done well over 20 years ago with a drug called Jafitinib, uh, trade name Aressa. Then there was a second drug, erlotinib, uh, Tarceva, and we basically found that in those patients that have these mutations, maybe one out of ten, you know, maybe two out of ten in, in the United States, much more common in Asia, by the way, you could give them this drug, and the chance that t- t- the tumor would shrink was about 60 70%. So that's, that, that avoids chemotherapy. Now, you do have other toxicities. You can get some rash, skin rash, which we help patients manage, and some, some loose stool. But really, for the most part, you're taking a pill each day, you go on and you're living with cancer. Cancer's still there, but it's under control with these drugs. And now just in the last year, we have a new drug, osimertinib, uh, trade named Targresso, which is a drug that works even in those patients where the first drug stopped working. Mm-hmm. So there are about 50% of patients that develop another uh, abnormality, and then this drug works. But still, that leaves another 50% for something else. And this is where you know one of the projects in our research group here at Yale 
led by Katie Paletti and, and uh, Sarah Goldberg and, and, our, and our colleagues, is to look at other agents, both in the lab, in animal models, and then in the clinic, that can actually help target uh, these uh, resistant patients. But still, no chemotherapy, that's, that's fantastic. And so are you taking a pill pretty much for the rest of your life? Mind you, it's just a pill. Well, that would be the hope. You, you, you continue to take the pill, and it would suppress, kill, and suppress the cancer, and you would take it for as long as possible. The problem is it's a Darwinian thing. With time, the survival of the fittest, the, mm-hmm. the cancer cells that, that become resistant will start to grow, and they'll have a survival advantage. So um, I've been doing this now. Probably we did some of the first studies, if not the first studies, when I was in Houston, um, you know, over 20 years. Most patients will, at some point, need something else. But the good news is we're trying to stay ahead of the cancer, constantly find these new drugs, working in partnership with industry. And really, this is an effort throughout the world. Um, there's a great deal of the, this disease in, in Japan, for example, China. They're, they're doing studies. We're doing many studies here at Yale. So I, I think that it's, it's very hopeful. Um, and uh, certainly, if someone has this, we're, we're usually quite happy about it. You know, we wish they didn't have cancer, but we're happy that we found something that can be treated with a pill. And we, and we treat them as, as long as possible. We move on to the second generation or third generation drugs when the time comes. And we're, we're looking for the fourth and fifth generation right now in a really hard way. And, and that's wonderful news. The sad news about that, however, is that the people who have an EGFR mutation are still only a minority. And so in the majority of patients, we started talking a little bit about advances in immunotherapy. So how many patients are eligible for immunotherapy alone versus immunotherapy plus chemotherapy? And tell us more about how exactly immunotherapy works in lung cancer. Well, let's start with how it works. So Let's say you have a, a cancer that's growing. You would think, why is the immune system not recognizing this cancer as abnormal and taking care of it, just like it would a virus or, or a bacterial infection that you might develop? That's because the tumor has gotten smart, and it, it makes a protein that actually blocks the immune system from functioning. So now what we have is we have drugs that block that blocker and actually reactivate the immune system. And, and this, this probably works in almost every patient to a small extent, some more than the other. The problem, of course, is we, we can't give it to patients that have other uh, immunologic problems because there's a reason why the immune system turns off. Mm-hmm. You know, if your immune system didn't turn off when you were having, being treated or having an infection, you'd have inflammation, redness, other, other toxicities that could be quite, quite harmful. So if someone already has an autoimmune process, for example, they have severe rheumatoid arthritis or they have, you know, uh, you know a thyroid, uh, immune-related thyroid disease or or, um, or colitis of sorts, or anything that's rheumatologic or immunologic, we have to be very careful about using these drugs. For the rest of them, though, with lung cancer, we're trying to give these drugs as early as possible. Um, a lot of this is work that came out of clinical trials. Right now, though, the clinical trials have led to a standard of care where if we do this pdl one test on someone who doesn't have any of these specific mutations but has lung cancer, and if that test shows that more than half the cells have this blocker, We'll give them immunotherapy potentially up front with no chemotherapy and nothing else. And we're doing that. We also know that even in that group, and this is where this is the good and the bad, and that's why we're, 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 we're coming to work each day looking for new things. Even in that good group, half the patients might not have their tumors shrink, um, which, is, uh, which is a good number. So that's why we have to look at new combinations. And we're doing that in a very scientific and caring way, and that's clinical trials. For the rest of the patients that don't have that high level, 
Uh, many of them now in a standard practice, not only at the main center here on Cedar Street where we are right now, but if you were to go to the, uh, the dozen or so care centers around the, uh, the state, they could get chemotherapy, immunotherapy combination. And that's being done, and we're doing that, and we're collecting samples from those patients so we can understand in those who it works and those who it doesn't work, why, so we can do even better. But really, you know, we're seeing some, some wonderful results, still a lot of room to do better, but it's helping patients. And then, of course, we have clinical trials where we're constantly trying to understand the personalization, uh, so to speak, as we talked about earlier. What is it about the tumor? Because as in any biologic process, there's complexity. So even though you might have this uh, protein blocker and you, and you block the blocker, there are other things that are occurring in the tumor that might uh, also act as rheostats and also turn off the immune system. So we're going to have to sort of catalog all of those and develop a model who should get two drugs, who should get three drugs, what drugs. And, you know, that's, it's fascinating. Uh, it's, it's clinically relevant, and we're trying to, to learn from some of the work in the lab and bring that to the clinic. So you asked about clinical trials. You know, we have clinical trials. We, we have right now within our lung group, we call it a DART, Disease-Aligned Research Team. We actually have, you know, close to 25 trials running. And uh, we, we look at the patient and we say, what's up, what's down? Here's a combination that might work better. Then, of course, you know, what if someone gets immunotherapy? What if someone hasn't come here to New Haven or to one of our care centers but got immunotherapy someplace else, which is many, many, many physicians have the ability to do this and are doing it very well, but then it stops working. So there is no response or patients respond and then it starts to grow again. We're developing therapies now in that refractory setting. And the way I hope we'll, we'll do this best is to biopsy the cancer, so get a piece of it, look at it, dissect it, Again, diagnosis. The first thing you do when you bring your car in, and this is much more serious than that, is you do a diagnostic. What's wrong? Know what's wrong, and then pick the drugs from our armamentarium, constantly growing, constantly becoming more safe, and put them together, and then understand how to have a better effect on the patient. And we're doing that. You know, in essence, in essence, Anise, the, the lab, uh, the clinic has become our lab. And, we're, you know, again, the first goal in any clinical practice is caring attention to a patient, to their symptoms and needs, and we do all that, but then really understand from their blood and their tumor what's happening, what's going on with the cancer. And by the way, it's not just in lung cancer. This is really, you know, uh, you know the, the way we're treating it. I know you do breast cancer work. You know, that's, I'm sure, the, another way that the breast group is looking at this right now. Triple negative breast cancer, for example, is an area where we're seeing uh, these, uh, these advances. So it really is pervading all of oncology, and, 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 and uh, the science is, is, is driving the way. And, um, but as we're understanding the mechanisms in science, people are being helped. People are benefiting, and that, that's what makes me so satisfied. You know, given that my long history in this field, um, I, I can clearly see the benefit. And sometimes you don't see that benefit when you're working right in the field, but it's so clear to even myself having worked in this uh, for so long. So tell us a little bit more about immunotherapy. How is it delivered? Is it IV? Is it oral? What are the side effects? I mean, it sounds like it's this amazing therapy that boosts your immune system and kills off cancer cells, but is it really just that easy? For some. Um, so it's given intravenously for now. There are some subcutaneous forms being developed. Someday maybe we'll understand enough about it to use an oral, but mostly it's intravenous. It's usually given intravenously once every two, three, or four weeks, depending on the drug. Certainly from a patient point of view, I think the less frequent you know, is, is likely preferred, though some people do find uh, it, 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 it reassuring to be here a little bit more often. 
uh, and the patients who, who, who it works extremely well, that 10% or 20%, it's phenomenal. We have patients from eight years ago who were on the first phase one trials who only received the drug for two years and are alive and well, doing great. You know, they come in for their checkups. They're out, you know, about. They're the types of people you might run into in the park or, you know, in, in the store doing great. And then for many others, they have some benefit. It's more of an intermediate benefit, meaning maybe the tumor might shrink a little bit and then stabilize. And uh, that's okay as long as it doesn't grow. Um, but then there are some where it, it might continue to grow or it might stop for a while and then grow again. Those are the ones where we have to then say, okay, there are other reasons why the, the immune therapy is not working completely here. Either they don't have the target, this PDL one we mentioned. Maybe we need to use another target. We're developing those. Maybe they become resistant because other proteins are, are blocking this effect. Let's do a diagnostic and figure out what those are. We have clinical trials for uh, agents that target what we call the tumor microenvironment. The, the cells, not the tumor cells, but the cells that are this tumor cells are lying in that might have a role. Because the immune system, um, again, I don't want to get too complicated here, but you need to block what we call the checkpoint, this PDL1. So you have to release the breaks. But then you also have to have immune cells moving into the tumor. And that doesn't always happen. Some tumors uh, don't get what we call inflamed. They don't get hot. The, the, the immune cells don't get there. You know, just like if you were to have poison ivy, your skin turns red. We need to have that happening in the tumor at the same time we're unblocking the tumor from the checkpoint. Now, we have to do this in a way that people have uh, minimal side effects or that we manage the side effects. In most patients, the side effects are quite manageable. But imagine if we turn off the rheostat, if we turn off the, 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 the off knob on the immune system, and we let the immune system go uh, on a rampage, you can imagine in certain people, it might cause inflammation in the colon. We call that colitis. Or inflammation in the lung. We call that pneumonitis. If you have inflammation in your lung, that's going to affect your breathing. You know, that's, you're, you're going to come in short of breath. If you have inflammation in your colon, that's going to cause gastrointestinal symptoms. If you have inflammation in your thyroid, your thyroid function might not work so well, meaning you might feel weak and, and tired. Uh, and if you have inflammation on the skin, you might have a rash. So we have to watch out for all this. Uh, the good thing is, you know, given the, that we were one of the first uh, groups to have that here at this hospital and in the system, we're constantly, you know, uh, upgrading our ability to treat these abnormalities. We know how to suppress the immune system if we have to. We even have ways of doing it where it doesn't affect the efficacy of some of these, these drugs. So you can treat the side effects and the patient might still benefit from the anti-tumor effects. In fact, I'm, after I leave you here, I'm going to a meeting um, of our Yale Center for Immuno-Oncology Working Group, which I am actually the chairman of, um, interim. We're, we're, we're um, searching for a permanent director. But what, what we're focusing on today are immune uh, toxicities. And what we're trying to build is, one, a clinical team, uh, you know, tops, the top clinical team we can put together where we have dermatologists and rheumatologists and pulmonologists and endocrinologists all working together because there are so many doctors that a patient might see. If you're a patient, you can't see every doctor. We have to have a team that can work together, that can say, here's a patient with this abnormality. What is, where, what is causing this, and how can we treat it? But then the thing that's wonderful about this place is we also have the Yale immunologists working with us as well. And they're saying, get us some blood. Get us some, some tissue. We'll figure out what the mechanism of, is of this toxicity, the molecular mechanism. And hopefully someday we can treat the toxicity so specifically, or at least know who's going to get that toxicity in advance so we can be preventive and still let the, uh, the immune therapy be active. So it's a, it's a very active area of research. Uh, we're dealing with it, with, it, with it in clinical practice. 
we get many, many referrals, as you might imagine, from from um, people from around the state and 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 the region who have, who have patients who are suffering from immune toxicities, given the experience we have at Yale. And immunotherapy does that work better or worse with chemotherapy? Does does it make the chemotherapy work better, or or is it uh, does it actually interfere with that a bit? Well, you would think might, it might interfere, right? You know, if you're trying to take immune cells and, and get them to grow. Uh, but but right now it looks like it's sort of a, a push, you know, that you know um, the immunotherapy and chemotherapy seem to work together in certain disease types, and that actually does result in, um, in 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 some benefit in patients who may not benefit at all. My personal opinion is it's at least uh, at least it's additive. You know, how to make it more synergistic? I bet we can do a little bit better by by understanding molecularly how it's working, and that'll come from clinical work and animal work, and we're doing both here at Yale. Terrific. Well, Roy, it has been so great having you here as my guest on Yale Cancer Center Answers. What an amazing advances in immunotherapy in lung cancer show that we've had today talking about clinical trials and how this is really moving the needle. Until next week, this is Dr. Anise Chagpar wishing everyone a happy and healthy week.